back to Portfolio Rescue. We always appreciate your comments, questions, feedback. Email us, askthecompoundshow at gmail.com. Duncan, yesterday you and I were talking offline. We both have some farming in our lineage. I think you said you're, and you have a beard, so that's close enough. But my great uncle owned a farm. Uh, he passed that down to my Uncle Patrick, who's actually my, the namesake of my middle name. That's my middle name, Patrick. Uh, he still owns and runs this farm. He used to have a bunch of animals, cows, pigs, chickens, that sort of stuff. Now it's all fruits and vegetables. One thing I learned, uh, he has 58 different varieties of apple trees on his farm, which I didn't even realize that there was that many. Did not know that. I actually worked on the farm a little bit growing up, tried to earn my keep. Uh, one of the oldest professions on the planet, and our sponsor today, Acre Trader, allows you to invest in farmland across the country. Uh, Michael and I like to call them the Zillow of farmland because... They're looking at, they're trying to take all these different factors and figure out water and soil and allow it to be better uh, analyzed. And they say one of the benefits of investing in farmland is that it has little correlation with stocks and bonds, but it has a very positive correlation to inflation. So it's something of an inflation hedge. If you think about it, this makes sense. There's direct correlation between farmland, commodities, food prices, all that stuff. When prices are going up, it would make sense that farmland would do well. Uh, AcreTrader makes it simple to invest in professionally reviewed farmland and timberland. Visit AcreTrader.com to learn more and to understand the risks involved in investing in farmland, please go to acretrader.com slash company slash terms. Duncan, welcome back. You were out last week. Can I just say a quick thing about the sponsorship thing? You know, Let's do you, it. you don't have to like go do anything, you know, just sending like traffic to, to these sites. It makes us look good. You know, that's all you have to do is click the link. You don't even have to do anything. You know, just want to throw go. that out there. Okay. Nice plug. Don't have to do anything. Just <laughs> click on it. We missed you last week. Duncan, you were under the weather. Uh, last week's show, we talked about a reader of my blog that I'd become friends with recently passed away. And he had this strategy for asset allocation and portfolio withdrawals. And he called it the four year rule. And we had dozens and dozens of people actually email in and say, Hey, I'd like to get more information on this, on this four year plan. Uh, if anyone wants it, they can feel free to email us. I sent it to a bunch of people, but I think this is just a good reminder, especially during a bear market that everyone needs a plan. And I think even a bad plan or a suboptimal plan is better than no plan at all because this is the time you realize like how important it is to understand what it is you're doing. And people, We get all these questions all the time like, should I buy this? Should I sell this? Should I get rid of these losses? And I think the biggest problem for most people is that they go into a lot of their investments without having a plan in place. Now, obviously, there's going to always be unforeseen circumstances in your life, in the markets, whatever, in the economy. But just having a plan, I think, can just make this a little bit easier to deal with in the stomach, even when we have these bad times. Yeah, I, uh, I think I think that that was a really good post. I was looking at it and I saw that um, I saw that the the person I can't think of her name right now, but they had actually responded really, really like substantially in a comment on your uh, on your site. Right back back yeah, when you yeah. posted that was like back when people actually interacted in the comments and stuff. Yeah, I don't I don't have comments anymore. I turned them off. I it was it was too much. But uh, yeah, feel free to leave one in the YouTube. So all right, let's get to our first question. Okay, uh, actually, um, can I'm going to have you stall for for one second because I just okay, see, I just noticed an issue. See, see, this is Duncan needs a plan for the show because uh, John, our behind the scenes producer, is not here today. So Duncan's flying solo. And uh, we've had some technical difficulties today, but we're going to get through it. And uh, if we can't show the first question, we'll just read it. But yeah, believe I it or not, it. it's it's actually a lot to to do by yourself. Um, yeah. Okay, now we got it now. So here we go. We are ready to go. Question one. I'm 24 years old and have been putting money into stocks every two weeks for about 18 months now. I know it's always a good idea to diversify between stocks and bonds, but right now I'm all in stocks. As I'm young, and I know that in the long run, this bear market is a good thing for young people like me. With the uncertainty of the market right now, 
do you think I should buy a couple of bonds, even if it's only $1,500 worth? Or would it be better to buy some of these stocks that are down significantly and may list a couple of tickers and seem almost certain to bounce back at some point, even if not for a while? So I like right, good one. on you. Yeah, good on you. 24 years old, dollar cost averaging, invests every two weeks. That's a great plan for someone that age. Here's the thing. A lot of investors approach the markets from the standpoint of what can I put my money in that can earn the highest rate of return? And obviously, there's nothing wrong with trying to earn a high rate of return. That's the whole point of investing in the first place. But there are tons of other factors involved in trying to allocate what that next dollar is going to do for you. So there's this old saying in personal finance that when it comes to budgeting, you should, get a, you should give every dollar in your budget a job. Meaning when you get your paycheck, everything should be allocated to something, whether it's rent, car payment, student loan, utilities, phone, Netflix, gym, savings, whatever. Everything should have a job and go to its rightful place. I think investing should have a similar rule of thumb. And the main determinants are usually your, your time horizon and your goals. So what's the point of this money in the first place? Are you saving for retirement? Is this going to be for a down payment for a house, a wedding, emergency fund? Uh, is it going to go in a tax-deferred retirement account? Are you putting this in a brokerage account? When do you need to spend the money? So it's not just what's the best use of this capital. It's what's the best use of this capital given my circumstances, constraints, and goals, and then time horizon. So I think once you begin looking at your investments through this personal lens rather than a market lens, your job as an allocator becomes a lot easier. It's not just, well, what's the best risk-adjusted return between stocks and bonds right now over the next six to nine months? Like, You don't have to be a person on CNBC or a hedge fund manager that, ma that manages money this way in, in terms of what's the best risk-adjusted return right now. It's, you know, what do you want to do with your money? How long do you want to invest it for? And what's the purpose of the investment in the first place? And only once you have that figured out, then you can figure out where to invest it. And the great thing is, as an individual, you don't have these constraints of being marked against some benchmark or risk-adjusted returns or alpha or whatever it is, like that that's like a constraint individuals don't have. So I would not try to make it so difficult in terms of what's the best thing right now over the next three to six to 12 months or whatever. It's it's what's what's my time horizon, what's my risk profile, and, and then what do I do with those dollars once I have that stuff figured out? Yeah, that sounds like good advice. I mean, they, they named some, some massive companies as potential stocks that they could invest in. I guess that's better than it being a bunch of like, you know, former SPACs or something. Um, because I mean, the, the, some of those the other might thing not is, come back, right? Whereas you, you think the big ones, the blue chips are going to come back at some point. They, and they could, but, but I wouldn't say they're certain to bounce back. Yeah, there, no, there's stocks not. like GE was the biggest stock on the planet for decades. But that dividend. And yeah, and, and that stock since, since the turn of the century has just gotten crushed. I think it's down 70, 80%. And yeah, the dividend gets cut. And, and so, yeah, you'd assume those stocks are pretty safe, but it's not, we don't know for sure. It's not certain. Right. All right, let's do another one. All right, up next, we have a question from Tanya. I've been minimally invested in bonds as a long-term investor, but if I can get 5% or more interest, I'd love to allocate funds and lock that in for as long as possible. I'm looking at corporate investment grade new issues and may largely seem to be callable in a year. While I would be happy if rates came down and I got my principal back in a year, I'd also be happy holding them if they're not called and I keep earning the less competitive but acceptable coupon. I'm anticipating bond index ETFs won't compete on yield over the next year with their current basket full of low coupon bonds until they mature and are replaced over time. Can you speak to the intelligence of buying individual bonds in today's market if an investor feels investment grade has acceptable credit risk and wants uh, competitive yield short or more, more ideally long-term versus dividend or bond ETFs? Okay. As someone who has been writing about finance for a long time, I know there are always certain topics that people have very strong opinions about. So paying down a mortgage versus investing the money, the CAPE ratio, the Federal Reserve, of course, passive versus active, crypto, all these things. 
you write or talk about these things and people have very strong views. I'm of the opinion that most financial decisions exist in a state of gray. There, there are very few black and white decisions. Most of it is gray, but a lot of people have very strong opinions. And one of the ones that surprised me the most is that people have very, very strong opinions about buying individual bonds versus buying bond funds. I wrote a piece about this in like 2014 and my inbox was full of people saying, you're an idiot or you're right or you're wrong or, and people have very strong opinions. So let me lay out the case like for and against owning individual bonds. So here's the thing right now, people think I buy an individual bond and I hold it to maturity. So I get the regular payments of income every six months or a year, however, depending on the bond determined by that initial yield. And then at maturity, I receive my principal back, which makes sense because a bond is a debt instrument, right? You're being paid back your original. So let's say you put $10,000 into a five-year U.S. Treasury bond. The yield's 4%. Every six months, you're going to receive $200. And then in five years' time, you're going to receive that $10,000 back, right? Now, the reason many people like holding individual bonds right now is because interest rates are up, and a lot of people say, well, my bond funds are getting crushed. I'm down 10 or 15% on bonds. If I just held individual bonds, I could just hold to maturity and get my principal back, and I wouldn't have to worry about any of these losses. And so even if rates move up and down in the, in the meantime, and my bonds are fluctuating every day when they're getting marked to market, I still receive that par value at maturity. Now, here's the other side of that. that now, that makes some people feel really good and warm and fuzzy. Here's the thing. Bond funds literally hold individual bond securities that are marked to market every day. How can a bond, how can a fund of individual bonds securities be any different than you personally holding individual bonds, right? This whole getting your money back at maturity might be a wonderful emotional hedge, but are you really any better off? When rates go up, the value of all bonds goes down, whether you're holding an individual bond or a bond fund. And while holding to maturity does allow you to get your money back at par, if the environment is higher rates and higher inflation like it is now, you're going to still be getting back nominal dollars that are worth less at the time of maturity. So let's say, for example, you own a bond fund that yields 2%, and then the yields go to 4%, which is basically what happened in a lot of bonds. If the duration of those bonds is five years, you would expect that fund to fall somewhere in the range of like 10% in value. That's happened to a lot of them. It's not any fun. Now, let's say, okay, I'm going to sell this bond fund, but I'm going to buy all the individual bonds in that fund, all the single issues. And those collectively now yield 4%. Are you really in a better position? Of course not. You're in the same exact place, right? Now let's look at the other side. Let's say you own one 2% five-year bond. Rates go to 4% in that, in that one bond. Sure, if you hold it, you get your money back at par. But now you're just earning 2% less than the market return. So either way, you're going to be losing money. So you could sell that bond at a loss and now buy the higher yielding 4% bond. Or you could hold it yielding 2%, get your par back, but then you're earning 2% less than, so you're, you're losing money either way. Like this is, this is just how bond pricing works. It's, there, there are no free lunches here. So it's, it's, it's kind of the same thing. And it's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine that people think that holding them is like this holy grail of you don't have any losses, but it's the same thing. Having said all that, there are pros and cons to each approach. So if you do hold individual bonds, you can potentially have higher trading fees because on the bid-ask spread, it's harder. You're not PIMCO. You don't have trillions of dollars of bonds that you're, you're trading. It typically requires more money in terms of minimums, depending on where you're trading. It's much harder to diversify, obviously. In a bond fund, you can own hundreds or thousands of bonds. If you're buying them on your own, you, you might need a lot of money to do that. It's much harder to rebalance with single-issue bonds. But there is that peace of mind if rates do change. Now, it's mostly in your own head, as I explained. But some people need that like emotional hedge. Um, the other thing is 
if you own individual bonds, your, your duration and your maturity is constantly changing. Because if you own a five-year bond, in a year, that's a four-year bond. In another year, that's a three-year bond. So your, your duration and your maturity could be changing. A lot of people might get around this by owning a ladder of bonds to keep that, that constant, but that, that's, that's kind of the same thing. Uh, there is much more complexity, although the, the one big positive, I think, besides the hedge of holding to par is that it's much easier to match your assets with liabilities. If you have something that you know you have to pay in five years and you buy a five-year bond, you know at par, you're going to get that money back, and that, that's something that you can use to then uh, invest when you need to spend that cash. So how about holding a bond fund? Bond funds are easier to diversify and rebalance. They're low in minimums. You do have to pay an expense ratio, which you don't have to for individual bonds. You have professional management trading them and hopefully getting lower trading fees because of scale. Uh, you have that constant maturity and duration because a lot of bonds are benchmarked and they'll, they'll keep some sort of constant one to three year duration or three to five years or whatever it is. Uh, but it does make it harder to match assets with liabilities unless you own different bond funds that have different types of maturity. So obviously each strategy has its pros and cons. And I didn't even get to the part about callable bonds here, which seems like that, that 5% yield I might not be worth it because that's just another added level of complexity if they do call the bond and bring it back to you. But the way I see it, you can get 5 to 6% in most corporate bond ETFs right now. So, so I don't know if, if going to a 5% individual corporate bond really makes sense to that. I guess that depends on, on if you really need that emotional hedge. But again, it probably depends on your tolerance for complexity and then how dependent you are on giving yourself that emotional hedge of holding bonds to maturity. But again, Maybe I'm going to get some more hate mail, but owning individual bonds is not different from owning a basket of individual bonds. Just like owning a stock ETF is similar to owning individual stocks, right? Either way, your performance is going to be similar. It could just depend how you can make it through those strategies. So I have a question as a civilian, non-financial you know, professional. Um, how do you even go about buying an individual bond? Well, you I can wouldn't do it know a, where to begin other than like You can I do it bonds. at a brokerage. You, if, if you have... TD Ameritrade or E-Trade or whatever, you can buy bonds there, but the, the minimum might be $10,000 or $25,000, depending on the... So gotcha. okay. you have to buy it in, in some... $10,000 is probably the minimum for most places because you have to... But you can also go to Treasury Direct, which we've talked about. For, if you want to buy treasuries straight from the U.S. government, uh, I'm pretty sure there's, there's no fees there. So you, you can do that. It's just your minimums might be a little higher than it would be for bond ETFs. But yeah, you can do it. And again, some people really like that peace of mind they get from buying individual bonds. I'm just here to tell you that it's mathematically, it, you're, you still own bonds either way, whether it's a fund or an individual bond. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I, that, that was kind of nerdy, but I, I think it's, I don't know, just a, I mean, a little We've, we've had people write in before asking about like being able to buy their own mortgage or s stuff like yes. that. Like People make this super complicated. I don't even yes. know. I, again, I, I think it, it, it's funny how people think that it's different. And again, bonds are driven more by math than the stock market is. But the, the, that's, that's also why the movements in interest rates affect the prices of bonds you're going to buy in the future and the ones you hold now. It's not like you can all of a sudden find this bond that's paying more money and you get your money back at, at par, at maturity, that's going to make you better off. It's not going to make you better off unless you can actually hold on to the strategy, I guess. Cool. So that sounds pretty definitive. So I like that. I'm putting this one to bed. That's what, that's what everyone, if you read a blog post, you say, this is the definitive post about individual bonds versus bond funds. The only post then, you ever need to read. And then people will still be arguing about it in a month. Right. All right. All that's right. another one. Question three is from Aaron. I adopted my son recently. Being in foster care before adoption means he'll get $400 a month until he turns 18. He's currently two. Plus, he gets free college. 
What can I do with that money to turn it into a big chunk he'll get when he turns 18? This, I, this I was an, an original. Yeah, this was an original. I honestly didn't know this either. I had to look it up a little bit. It, I think that it varies by state in terms of, but it sounds like that $400 per month is at a lot of states, and also the scholarship piece for free college is a thing for foster care in a lot of a lot of states. So I don't know where Aaron's from, but kudos to you, Aaron. Um, I, I've talked about this yeah, before. Congratulations, My wife and I went, first and foremost. Yeah, right? yeah, congrats. That's awesome. My wife and I went through IVF, and it took a long time for that to work. And in the meantime, we, we went down the adoption path. And I will say... Uh, our personal experience, though, that it's not an easy experience. So I, I give Aaron a lot of credit for going through this and, and pulling it off because uh, eventually the IVF worked for us. But we went down that path pretty far, and it's uh, it's not easy. So uh, here's the thing. Your son is two, and he gets $400 per month until age 18. So we're talking 16 years of compounding. My first rule here is just do no harm. If we're talking $400 a month, that's $4,800 a year. And that's also, what, $77,000 over 16 years, if my math is right there. That's that's almost seventy seven thousand. That that's pretty good. So back of the envelope, if you've got a five percent return on that, we're talking I don't know hundred thirteen thousand dollars. If you got seven percent, we're talking over hundred thirty k. So that's real money. So we, unless the system completely falls apart, if you invest this in any sort of diversified portfolio of financial assets that uh, aren't completely insane and some really smart thirty year old billionaire walks away with them, I think you're gonna be okay. So my, my one piece of advice would be is don't try to shoot the moon with this. Don't go crazy. Like you're going to be offering six figures to your son at age 18. And that's, that's an amazing gift. So, uh, I've talked about this before, but what I did with my three kids is a couple of years ago, I opened up just a lift off account at Betterment and I just make monthly contributions to diversified portfolio. And the account is technically in my name. I didn't want to get fancy because doing a Roth IRA for your child, unfortunately is not very easy. They have to have some earned income. I think there's some backdoor ways around it, but I didn't want to go through that. So I just opened an account for myself. Does an allowance count as income? (sighs) Yeah, maybe the tooth fairy. So I just have a, I have a bucket for each of my three kids. Uh, I I don't know why I'm going to turn it over whether it's 18 or 21, but I did, there's two reasons for this. One is I save a little bit now and I can give them a head start when they're adults. And then maybe for their first down payment or their wedding or buying a car or whatever it is when they need money, when they first start out. But I also want to use these accounts to teach them about the power of compounding and dollar cost averaging. So I'm using these as a teaching tool to help them understand the importance of saving and investing. And I'm also trying to incentivize them to save. So I told my daughter when she starts getting money for birthdays and holidays or whatever, you know, she gets 20 bucks. And I say, hey, if you if you put that 20 bucks into your investment account, I'm going to match it dollar for dollar. So you put 20 in, you get 40. So uh, I, I've worked on her a little bit. She's putting like 50% of all her cash in there now, which is kind of great. Uh, no two and 20. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not charging fees on that. So I, I think you could also do like a custodial brokerage accounting, but I, I think the best thing you can do is just dollar cost average this into some sort of diversified basket. Uh, use that money as a learning tool. Uh, I was going to bring him in for the next question, but let's bring our guest on for today, Kevin Young, who is a, an advisor with us at Ritholtz. Kevin, any other financial planning aspects I'm missing here in terms of taxes or accounts that you could use? Uh, anything else I'm missing here besides the big building blocks? Yeah, Dave in the comments said, uh, don't forget the taxes. Okay. Yeah, that, that's that's a good point. I think I think broadly though, Ben, I, I'm in total agreement with you. I think do no harm is is a great way to put this. Um, low cost, dollar cost averaging every month. Uh, it, it's it's going to be a home run. A um, couple things to think about from a planning perspective. Um, I I had never heard of this either. So upon some googling, uh, it seems like the rules vary state to state and. Just make sure that while you might think, okay, college is taken care of, I'm all set, um, 
just read the fine print and make sure you know exactly what that means. Because if it means that it's free as long as they go to a state university um, and uh, you live in Ohio and uh, and your child says, I don't want to go to Ohio State. I want to go to Michigan, let's say. Uh, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Um, then you're now in a bind because maybe that maybe that tuition is not covered. Yeah. Um, so I think the UTMA accounts are a really good way to do it. Um, taxes, the taxes piece of it, you do get a little bit of an advantage in that the first $1,100, I believe it is, is, uh, is there is no tax on it. The first $1,100 of, of, um, of gain. So whether that be capital gains or income or, uh, or distributions from a fund you might invest in, the next $1,100 is taxed at your child's rate, which probably is going to be effectively zero. I think it's technically 10%, but um, effectively it's zero. Um, and then over and above that would be at your rate. So there is some tax advantage to that. The other piece is when when they do reach age of majority, which it depends a state, it could be as low as 18, as high as 25, um, there's nothing stopping your child from getting access to that money outside of you basically hiding the account. Um, but once, once that child does reach a, age of majority, uh, they call whatever custodian you have it at and say, cash me out, send it to my bank account or send me a check. There's nothing stopping them. Yeah, which, um, is, which is probably why it makes sense to use it as a learning tool as well. So they it, understand yeah. like this is, this is a big responsibility where you get that much money at that age. It, exactly. But, but what it does at that point that just opening a, a brokerage account in your name and kind of just mentally putting that to the side for your child is if, if ben, you know, Ben's assumptions are correct and let's say there's $130,000 in there at, at 18 or, or 20, whenever it is, and you want to give that money to your child, you've got gift tax considerations, uh, right? So uh, we don't want to eat away at your exemption um, or as little as possible anyway. So by having the assets in your child's name, uh, that avoids having to technically transfer those assets from, from you to, to the child. So a custodial brokerage account might be the best option then. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that's I think that's a good way to go. Um, and the only other consideration, again, with the college piece, is if the child doesn't end up going to a school that would qualify for this uh, these tuition waivers or grants or however they're worked out, um, is that would be a student your student's asset. That would be your child's asset on uh, student aid applications and things of that nature. So just things to keep in mind from a planning perspective, but. Uh, but I think you're in a great position to um, to set your child up for for a really great future. So yeah, yeah. This, this was a cool one. I, I'd never heard of this before. So I yeah. this was a neat question. It also Fair made me feel it. old because I was just thinking like 18. I feel like maybe they should get it at like 21 or maybe 25. I don't know. Yeah, you could just hide it. That's we we get a lot of our clients come to us and they'll be 35 years old and say, you know, my parents just told me about this. Um, so <laughs> if you can if you can beat Thanks, the Mom kid to the mailbox every day for the next you know couple of decades. That's one way to do it, I guess. That's funny. That's another one, Duncan. Okay. Up next, we have a question from Charles. <laughs> I have ulcerative colitis and know that I may not live as long as most other healthy people, but an online search shows most people with my condition have a normal lifespan of around 75 years. With new medical breakthroughs coming out every year, how should someone living with an autoimmune disease like me be thinking about life expectancy and how that relates to when we should retire? Is that even a consideration? Okay, heavy question here. Yeah, Yeah. heavy question, but a good question. I mean, death and taxes, right? Something we all have to live with eventually. Duncan, throw out my charts here. This is from Our World and Data. In 1800, the average life expectancy globally was 29 years old. Uh, Go ahead to 1950, 
we're talking global average of about 46 years old. By 2015, now we're talking 71 years old. Retirement is still a relatively new concept. In the past, most people simply just worked until they died. Uh, so like this longevity piece is something that a lot of people have to deal with. Kevin, you've built a lot of financial plans in your career. Most of the time you're making an educated guess. Like you're going to retire at age 65. You're based on your health data and family history. You could live to age 87, whatever it is. Um, sounds like Charles is going to be fine, but if he wants to plan for the potential for health problems, autoimmune, autoimmune disease, how do you even begin to take that into account when building a financial plan in terms of setting your time horizon, how much money you should spend? And, and how do you go about updating that as you get closer to old age? Yeah. So, so yeah, these, this is a really, this is a really good question. One I certainly haven't seen before, but, but one that we address, uh, constantly in financial planning. Right. And, and there's a couple of things that when we're building plans and we're talking to clients, uh, about this process, there's a few things we cannot control, right? One is uh, one is the what the markets are going to do, um, and two is how long you're going to live. And so, so whether you have an autoimmune disease or disorder, um, or you you know think you're going to live to 110 um, or anywhere in between, uh, that is a piece that we just can't control. And so, my default is I always run plans to age 95. And somebody, in, unless somebody is pounding the table saying. No, no, no! All four of my grandparents lived to 102. Um, it's it's going to be longer. Or well, none Duncan Duncan doesn't eat meat and he drinks oat milk, so he's going to live to like 115. Yeah. So so and, we'll and you know Duncan Duncan's <laughs> going to have a very different portfolio than than I will because I I I very much enjoy meat. Um, and so uh, so you know steak steak is a staple. Um, but, but regardless of that, right? We want to we want to plan for we want to be conservative in those assumptions in the sense that we want to assume you're going to live past some given date. Because the last thing we want to do, right, is plan for you to live to 82 years old and say, okay, well, based on 82 and your withdrawal rate, you only need 5.2% rate of return. Great. Let's build your portfolio that historically should average around 5.2%. Um, well, what happens if you live an extra decade? And if you run those projections, the rate of return that we might need might be 6.2%. Um, so, Ultimately, I think being conservative with the projections on how long your retirement's going to last is a good way to do it. Um, Are you also a also, little quicker for someone in Charles's situation to say, but if, if you're really if you're on the fence about a vacation home or a trip or whatever early on in your retirement, go ahead and do it and we'll build that into the plan because who knows what's gonna happen. Right. Right. Yeah. You 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 also you also you also as 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 it's been said, you can't take it with you. Right. So right. Um, there's a, I think there's a, a book out now that's, that's becoming more and more popular in our circles called, I think it's, it's, forgive me if the title's wrong, but it's basically dying with zero. The yeah. idea that you can't enjoy this money once you're gone. And I think for a little bit of an older generation, it was always, I want to leave my kids and grandkids money after I'm gone. Well, wouldn't you want to enjoy that money or see them enjoy that money uh, instead? And right. so I think this kind of ties with that. And that if you do have things you want to do, um, to Ben, your point, Build it into a plan and see how it affects things in the long run, um, right. and that's ultimately, I think, gonna gonna tell you, okay, this is how I should invest. I mean, generally speaking, we know that um, academically, that equities should do better over the long term than almost any other asset class, at least any other common asset class. And so, it makes sense that if you're going to have a really long retirement, that you're going to need to be maybe a little bit more equity based than than fixed income based. Good. All right, Duncan, last question. 
Okay. That uh, I was just looking at that map again. That that map that we shared. If you go back, you can pause and look at each of them a little longer. But it's pretty stunning. Pretty cool, right? How much yeah. that uh, how much that's changed? Yeah, and it, someone in the comments mentioned a lot of that was uh, infant mortality. But we we have now more people over the age of sixty five, and I think then under the age of fifteen or something ridiculous like that. We we've never had a uh, demographic this big live this long before, yeah. uh, and just getting longer every year. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so last but not least, we have a question from Micah. Looking for some help on how best to structure finances over the next few years. I'm currently working as an analyst at a bank with a relatively average salary. My wife is a third of the way through a three-year CRNA program. Once she finishes school, our household income will increase by roughly three to four times. At that point, we will both be in our late 20s. Wow. Young. Uh, I've been funding our Roths for the last few years, and I recently bumped up my workplace IRA to 10% to take advantage of current market conditions, but we are still taking on a decent amount of loans for her DNAP program. Obviously, the calculus would include comparing the loan rate to the expected rate of return if I were to prioritize the market, but I was hoping to get your guidance on what to truly prioritize over the next few years. What are some considerations for those expecting an income jump to keep in mind to best set themselves up for the long term? All right, They're so really like thinking wife, about everything here. Yeah, wife is in a nursing program, going to be making more money when she comes out, but she also has the debt to deal with. So, uh, Kevin, with the caveat that there are no right or wrong answers to something like this, how do you help clients think through this type of decision where I'm going to be making more money, but I also have uh, more financial responsibilities to deal with as well? Yeah, I mean... Ultimately, this is this is kind of what you hope for, right? You uh, you're you're making an investment in education that is going to uh, bump your income up, and um, and so that's that's excellent. Um, and and clearly, uh, clearly, we've got some forward thinking folks here as far as what to be focusing on. Um, and yeah, there there is no right answer. Ultimately, you know, I think personal finance, is, as you guys have said, as, as we've said a lot, it, it is personal. And so, what exists on a spreadsheet. Uh, doesn't necessarily, and what makes sense on the spreadsheet may not make sense in, you know, your head or your stomach or your heart. Right. And so, you know, we have, I, I have clients that have a, a 3% mortgage and they are making extra payments to their mortgage to pay down, pay down the principal. Uh, and they've got 20 years left on the mortgage. Well, if we assume that over the next 20 years, the market is going to return more than that 3%. The spreadsheet, the math would suggest you absolutely don't put more money into that mortgage. You put it in the market. Um, But I also, those same clients say, I feel better knowing that my debt is being paid down faster. I don't like debt. It makes me uncomfortable. Um, I want to get out of it as soon as possible. And so, yeah, the, the math says don't do that. But ultimately, I think the plan that you can live with and the plan that makes you happy as long as it doesn't derail the goal, uh, is going to be the right answer. So if you're somebody who, you know, if you and your wife are are people that really are uncomfortable with debt, um, you can tilt a little bit more of that income towards paying that debt down faster. Um, If it's going to gnaw at you that this money should be invested and getting a higher rate of return, um, then that's the way to go. It really I also is. give them credit for they've already been investing in their Roths while she's going to school. He's already he's, he's still contributing to his his plan. My main thing about getting an income bump, if if it's a bonus or a jump in income, I like the idea of of doing some sort of allocation on it where you say I'm going to save fifty percent of this 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 bonus or this this jump in income, 
And the other 50% I'm going to use for debt repayments or increased savings. And so some some ways you give yourself a bump in standard of living so you don't it, it's not all for nothing. But then you you figure out, okay, I'm with 20% of this, I'm going to repay debt, and the other 30% I'm going to save more. And, and sort of figure out some sort of set allocation there. And then you can kind of adjust going forward depending on what happens. And as you guys get bumps in income going ahead in the future, since you're still pretty young, you can figure out which one of these made us happier. Is it growing our retirement accounts or paying off this debt and seeing it go down? So I think splitting the difference in some ways can be a good way to test it out, doing an A-B test to figure out which one is going to make you happier anyway. Because some people just don't know either. Yeah, that's that, that's true. And I also think another thing to consider here is is that um, it's always nice to have a little bit of extra liquidity, right? So if you are, even if even if you are really hyper-focused on paying debt down, um, you don't want to get into a situation where you've paid your debt down and that's great, but you have very little liquid assets. And then something happens, something changes, a career change, um, God forbid, a disability, anything of that nature that while everything looks good on paper right now and you're you know, the trajectory is solid. You really want to make sure that you do have funds set aside for if things do change. Yeah, um, give so, a margin of safety. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, whether that's, you know, having, you know, six months to a year's worth of living expenses and cash, uh, or just knowing that, Hey, I want to have, you know, some, some extra liquidity in a brokerage account. Um, if you know, something changes, that's, that's always a good thing to consider as well. Perfect. Okay. Uh, no show next week because of Thanksgiving. Obviously, it's too bad we're gonna we're gonna argue about what our favorite Thanksgiving sides are. Like I was hoping we'd have a year. political debate. You know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks to Kevin for joining us again. We always appreciate those insights. Yeah. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, thanks for having yeah, me. If you're watching this on YouTube, remember hit the subscribe and like button. Leave us a comment. Leave us a question in the comment sections. If you want some compound merch, do we still have the Fed shirts, Duncan? We do. We do. I, I don't know how much longer Josh is gonna the have Fed Godfather have shirts. Up there, yeah. But yeah. We have. are not gonna be up much longer. Those are pretty sweet. Uh, keep the questions and comments coming. Remember, if you have an email for us, ask the compound show at gmail.com and we will see you in a couple weeks. See you, everyone. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is brought to you by Ritholtz Wealth Management. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities mentioned on this podcast.